potluck after services this morning. Uh, primarily, or at least the title on it, is to meet the Perkins. I'm excited about that, mostly because I figure it's the last time I'll be at the front of a line here for uh, some time. But I really do appreciate so much all the hospitality that's been shown to us by all of you so far. I appreciate what Brother Parker had to say in his prayer earlier, the, the gratitude that's been shown for us being here, and I know that many of you have expressed that in your prayers and, and to us, and I, I just want you all to know how excited we are about being here, and, and I look forward to the opportunity. You have to get to know us better, not only today, but in the weeks and months and years to come, but I want to be able to get to know all of you better, too. I, I know this congregation spent several months without a pulpit minister, and I know that many of you have expressed to me how glad you are that that time period is over and that uh, we're here. My prayer is that all of us here together, me, you, every one of us, can all work together, and this, this will be a, a fruitful period for the church here in Liberty. And that actually brings me to what I want us to talk about this morning. Every Lord's Day, you enter in one of these doors, and you'll be greeted by any number of people. And of course, there are always people milling about and visiting as we're trying to start services, and that's a good thing. But what if one Sunday morning you entered, and someone greeted you at the door, and they stuck out their hand, and they said, well, good morning, preacher. I expect you would be pretty surprised by that, taken aback. Me? There must be some sort of mistake. Now, I know here in this church, I've heard that there are some who, if they were greeted that way, and that meant they needed to get up and uh, preach a sermon, that they would be ready for that, and that's good, because a lot of congregations don't have that. But still, you would be caught off guard no matter who you are. See, the point is, in our day and age, we tend to think of the preacher as someone, well, I thought about having a visual, but you think of someone like me. I, I say that. I had one person earlier this morning tell me that I looked like the great Gatsby today. Another said that I looked like a professional gambler. Um, Maybe you don't, maybe I don't look like a preacher. But what I mean is someone standing here behind the pulpit. We think of the preacher as someone who has his prepared bit to say week in and week out for a few minutes, hopefully the fewer the better. And that he's to apply some sort of religious message to our lives. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the idea of the preacher as someone who, after a, a formal period of training, is set aside and delivers his message week in and week out, that doesn't really capture the spirit of the New Testament idea of preaching or preachers. As in all aspects of our lives, Jesus is the model for us in preaching, and I want us to begin there. Have you ever noticed as you read through the gospel accounts how often he's portrayed as preaching? Now, sometimes that's what we would typically think of 
as preaching. That is, he's addressing large congregations. We can picture him in sort of the church building there, as it were, delivering his message. But I think of one day, for example, he preached to a crowd that was following him while sitting on the side of a mountain. And he unfolded to them all of the teachings about the kingdom of God. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. On another occasion, I remember thinking about formal preaching. He preached in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. That's in Luke chapter 4. This was at the very outset of his ministry. He read from the scroll of Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he said, this day this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. And they were so angry that they tried to kill him. They took him outside. They wanted to throw him headlong off a cliff. Now, if nothing else, at least his audience was listening that morning. That was a moving sermon. We have many stories of crowds following Jesus around, of him preaching to them, addressing them in parables. But what I think is worth noting, and what I really want us to focus on this morning, is that Jesus did a good deal of preaching to small groups, even to individuals. There was one day when he was sitting on a well curb outside the little village of Sychar, and he spoke there with a woman, a Samaritan. And he unfolded to her the secrets of the spirituality of God. God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There was another occasion. It's actually the chapter before, John chapter 3. Jesus revealed the truth about his own identity, the nature of conversion to one man, a Pharisee. Remember the Sanhedrin by the name of Nicodemus came to him at night in secret because he was afraid. And Jesus told him that unless one is born again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they can't enter into the kingdom of God. And he went on to explain the, the indwelling power of God and how the Lord can transform a person. Or then there was the time when Jesus spoke about the power of the resurrection in John chapter 11. You know this passage. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. You remember when he preached that sermon? It was to one woman grieving there at the graveside of her brother, Lazarus, Martha. So perhaps the most beautiful sermon Jesus ever preached on the idea of resurrection, of immortality, he made it just, just one person. And Jesus was a tremendous Bible teacher. We see on another occasion, he opened up all of the scriptures and he interpreted the Old Testament, the prophets, in light of his work, how that everything from the beginning until then was pointing forward to him. And he spoke in such a way that it says those he was speaking to, their hearts burned within them. And yet that address was delivered to just two people a man named Cleopas and his companion walking along the road to Emmaus. So what we see in, in some is that some of, most Jesus, some of Jesus' most powerful statements, some of his most profound preaching was done to small groups, even to individuals. But when Jesus did preach 
to crowds, what we would more typically call preaching. What did he talk about? Well, on one occasion, he talked about wise and foolish men who were building houses, and he compared them to those who were obedient versus disobedient to his message. On another occasion, he talked about a woman who took a little measure of leaven and hid it in a whole bunch of meal. Or then, in Luke chapter 15, for example, we have a number of stories. One about one lost sheep out of a hundred that a shepherd went looking for. One about a lost coin that a woman goes sweeping up her entire house to find. He relates an incident of a young man who ran away from home. You see, the point is that Jesus took common, everyday, ordinary illustrations, just the basic facts of life, and he used those to explain to his audience the glory and the power of God. He met them where they lived, as we say. He approached people in a way that they could understand so that they could learn about the kingdom of God. And with all of that said, is it any wonder that after Jesus' ascension, his follower, followers went around preaching too? We see that most clearly, perhaps, in Acts chapter 8. They couldn't see Jesus with their eyes anymore, but they knew he was in their hearts. And in Acts chapter 8, persecution breaks out after the death of Stephen. That's in chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. And because of that spark being lit there, persecution forms, and all of the early disciples there in Jerusalem, with the exception of the apostles, are, are driven out. They're scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, etc., Christians were being dragged from their homes, taken to jail, in some cases killed. But everywhere they went, Acts chapter 8 tells us, they went preaching the word. Verse number 4, Acts 8. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And we see that play out over and over again in Acts. In that very same chapter, there's a fellow by the name of Philip. You remember Philip. Philip goes down, and well, first he goes to Samaria, and he does some preaching there to larger groups. But then on one occasion, the Spirit speaks to him, and there's a, a chariot up the road, and it says, go join yourself to that chariot. And he does, and it's just one man there in the chariot, a powerful man, a, an official, a, a treasurer in the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. And he's reading there from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and he asks, Who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip, it says, began at that point, and the King James actually says he talked to him, he began there, he preached to him Jesus. Another example we find, Saul. We remember Saul as one of those persecutors, one of those who was consenting to the death of Stephen. But Saul, of course, became that great preacher, that great man of God, the Apostle Paul. And we read through Acts, and we see Paul engaged in all sorts of mission work, planning churches throughout the eastern end of the Mediterranean. We think of Paul as a great preacher. And you know, Paul was a great preacher. But if you read the text closely, there are indications that Paul might not have been the best public speaker. He once preached a sermon so long and so dry, Acts chapter 20, that a fellow went to sleep. Now, I confess, I've seen some people fall asleep 
and my preaching too. You think I can't see you up here, but I see everything. You should know that. But he preached a sermon so long, so dry, this fellow fell asleep. I've had that happen. But I've never had someone fall asleep so soundly that they fall out of the window and die. That's how boring Paul's sermon evidently was that evening. On another occasion, Acts chapter 17, he goes to Athens. Athens was the intellectual, cultural capital of the Greco-Roman world. And he goes up to Mars Hill to the Areopagus. And he reasons there with the philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. He talks to them about the unknown God. And he gets to the part about the resurrection of the dead. And when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, it says that most of his audience mocked him. <laughs> resurrection of the dead, that's a ridiculous idea. Some of the others wanted him to come back just to make sport of him because, as Luke tells us, uh, those in Athens always like to hear one new idea or another. Some of his critics said, those in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, that his, his letters are weighty and strong. But on the other hand, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. He's a good writer. But then we see him in person, he's nothing special. But did Paul care about being the best public speaker? Did Paul care about impressing people? No. He says in that same 2 Corinthian letter that he wasn't interested in having lofty speech or wisdom. That's chapter 2, verse 1. He recognized the important thing wasn't the messenger. It was the message. That's what he says in chapter 4, that God had entrusted to him the gospel, this treasure, in an earthen vessel or in a clay jar. Paul took the gospel, he took that message that he'd been entrusted with very seriously. He didn't take himself, his delivery, his presentation, nearly as seriously in comparison. He saw himself for the frail, flawed vessel that he was. It, it was common practice in ancient times, much like we do in some ways today for people to, to keep their silver, their gold, their valuables in these clay jars to sort of hide them there. So what does Paul have in mind when he sees himself as a clay jar, an earthen vessel entrusted with the treasure of the gospel? Well, I'm sure he had in mind his physical infirmities. You know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but he talks about something that physically afflicted him. Some have thought it could have been an eye problem. There's some evidence of eye disease. You think about the blinding light on the Damascus Road. But whatever it was, Paul had physical infirmities. It could have been his weaknesses of character that he had. It could have been his own limitations in his mind that we all have. It could have been the fact that he wasn't the best public speaker. Maybe he was aware of that. Or maybe it was, you know, Peter writes at one point that a lot of the things that Paul wrote were hard to understand. Maybe that was the case when he was preaching and teaching, that he was so knowledgeable and so intelligent that sometimes he went over the head of his audience. All of these things are a real comfort to someone who stands in the pulpit because I might not always be as eloquent as I'd like to be, and I might not always be as, as clear as I'd like to be. But if that's the case, well, I'm in good company. The Apostle Paul could understand that. I'm just an earthen vessel, too. But what's more important, and this is what I want you to take away here, in contrast to his own weaknesses, whatever they may have been, Paul was aware 
of the great power of the message that he preached. And Paul maintained his sanity and Paul maintained his faith by distinguishing at all times between the power of the gospel that he preached and the relative weakness of the man who was preaching it. And what results did God work through the gospel that Paul preached? If he wasn't the greatest public speaker, then maybe what we can see is that Paul was very effective with individuals, with small groups, much like Jesus was. A good case study is in Philippi, Acts chapter 16. He goes there out to the riverside. He finds some women praying. He converts their, uh, the ringleader there, Lydia, and her household. He casts a demon, an evil spirit, out of a slave girl. We don't know if she becomes a follower or not, but quite possibly. He converts his jailer there in Philippi, and then that night he and all of his household are baptized. You see, the point is, Paul was a great preacher, even if he may not have been the greatest pulpit minister. Here's the point this morning. The real preachers in any congregation are not just limited to whoever's on the staff. And that doesn't matter whether it's a staff of one minister. It doesn't matter whether it's a congregation with thousands of members and, and dozens of people there on the staff. The real preachers in any congregation include everyone sitting in the pews. All of you are preachers. It doesn't matter whether you're 8 years old or you're 98 years old. Each and every one of you have the opportunity to communicate the gospel of Christ in convincing and winning terms. You're a steward of the divine mysteries of Jesus Christ. Now maybe you hear that and you're saying to yourself, I'm not even a good Bible student. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't know anything about theology. Think about this. We'll, we'll make it personal. You're probably not an expert in military strategy. It doesn't stop you from thinking about how generals ought to be running a war. You're probably not an expert economist, but it doesn't stop you from talking about the stock market or the price of gasoline. Or you want to make it really personal? I played high school football. Some others of you probably did too. But there's probably not, maybe there are some, probably not too many football coaches in here. Definitely no professional scouts or GMs that I'm aware of, but it doesn't stop you from talking about how Bob McNair should run the Texans or Jerry Jones should run the Cowboys or, or criticizing Tom Herman or, uh, well, it was Kevin Sumlin. Now it'll be Jimbo Fisher just as soon as games start again. The point is we don't consider ourselves to need that sort of expertise to talk about different subjects in our everyday lives. What about when it comes to preaching and teaching the gospel? See, I want to emphasize that the way that we preach, what kind of preaching do you do? One big part of it is the talking that you do day in, day out, seven days a week, 365 days a year. At some point, the devil spread a good idea, and that is that you don't ever want to talk about religion because it's, it's divisive. It can bring all sorts of problems. But that ought not to be the case. When we talk about the life-changing power of the gospel, that ought to bring love and hope and faith and encouragement to people out in the world. 
And of course, the preaching that we do isn't only through the things that we say. It's through the things that we do. Our actions speak louder than our words. We all know that. See, people can't be forced. They can't be legislated into loving and serving God. They can't even be talked into loving and serving God. They can only be drawn into it. And that takes time. That takes examples. That takes relationships. Think about in your own experience, those of you who already are Christians, what is it that strengthens your faith, that strengthens your devotion, that strengthens your commitment? Isn't isn't it when you see the example of someone who's living a life for Christ? Isn't it when you see someone whose attitude is characterized by mercy and grace? Someone who lives a life of, of patience and of prayer? Someone who's so filled with the love of Christ that all of their acts emerge from their convictions. Their life isn't out of harmony in any way with what they profess to believe. We need to exemplify the life of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Because I'm convinced that more people have been driven away from Christ by a crude caricature of what they think a Christian is than they have actually been drawn to Satan through atheism or uh, fleshly temptations or anything else. The most winning, the most powerful gospel appeal that we can make is through our everyday, ordinary lives. Live for Jesus day in, day out consistently. That's what it means. We've, the scripture was read before we started today. That's what it means to live lives of, of salt and light and of good deeds that people can see. It will cause them to glorify God. We'll be like that shining city set on a hill. People will be drawn to that. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we can live our lives in such a way that outsiders will see that and it will cause them to glorify God at the judgment. That means that they'll be converted too. We must exemplify the life of Christ in our lives. In the end, the words, the actions of the pew are much more powerful than those from the pulpit. The sermons that you preach in your daily lives are much more powerful than anything, not only I, but anyone else could ever say here. It doesn't matter if this building was filled to capacity every Sunday morning. I wish it were. And I don't know what this place seats, four or five hundred maybe. If we had this many people in here and we had the greatest public speaker in the world preaching the gospel of Christ, it doesn't matter. The greatest preaching that you can do, for that matter, the greatest preaching that I can do, is in the everyday fellowship that we have with individual men and women who see Christ living in us. And that's not because of any great power that I possess or that you possess. It's the power of the gospel shining through within us, drawing other people to Christ. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, what kind of sermon are you preaching with your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You've never submitted your stubborn will to Jesus. I want to urge you to become one. 
to come to faith in Christ, that is to put your belief, your trust in Him, to turn to God in repentance and to be buried with the Lord in baptism, have your sins washed away, be added to God's people. But maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian. What concept of Christianity, of the church, of Jesus, do people have from your life? What kind of sermon are you preaching? Maybe you need to change the text of it. If there are any changes that you need to make in your life today, if we can help you in any way, you have the opportunity to make your need known while we stand and while we sing.